Hello, Sophia. Welcome to the Creative Insider Podcast. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very curious to have you on. As I told you, I got to know you through Mariana Cabugueira. But if you don't mind, you can mm-hmm. introduce briefly yourself and tell the people who don't mm-hmm. know you yet who you are and what you do. So I'm Sofia Hagen. Uh, I'm based in London, but originally Austrian-Polish. And I studied architecture at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna with Zaha Hadid. That's how I came to London as well in 2008. So I've been here quite a while now. And um, I worked in like, originally I'm an architect and worked in like large and small scale architecture and interior firms. And in 2020, I started my own studio, Hagen Hinderdahl, together with my friend Lisa. And we do 3D printed furniture, art installations, etc. But we'll talk about that now. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's super. It's super funny because the last pod, uh, podcast before this one, I had uh, another guest that also studied at, in Vienna, also with Zahadid. Just a few years really? later, yes, <laughs> I guess a few <laughs> years later. So uh, we, we continue the series. Uh, we can cover yeah. these topics. Uh, what was for you personally the reason to become a designer and architect? Uh, what was your expectations or how did you come up with this idea is maybe someone in your family that it's already an architect or you just wanted to play lego a lot when you were um, a kid so it just mm-hmm. um so no one in my family whatsoever um i well my polish grandmother she used to be a sculptor but it jumps a generation in our family i guess Um, but I always, I think since I was a kid, loved to create, draw, you know, like created whole spaces and worlds. So I knew I want to go into that direction. And I knew, uh, yeah, an arts university. And back then it was a bit like, you know, I'm from the west of Austria at the Swiss border. So not Vienna. You don't have special schools for, I mean, it's changed now. But back in my days, you know, you don't have like special school specializing on those things so I basically from scratch applied to the University of Applied Arts and I thought architecture more in terms of uh, it's a very broad spectrum of what you can do with it you know I didn't necessarily want to just be an architect or only focus on buildings or urban planning I wanted to do anything that's to do with design is if it's jewelry or a building or a set design, whatever, you know, across the board. So I figured with an architectural education, I could change scales because you should technically get a basic skill set of like a bit of everything. And then you can, if you want to, you have to educate yourself still, but you know, you can focus on other things as well. And yeah, so at the Angewandte, it was quite good in that respect because we could also change around, you know, be interdisciplinary, do workshops with visual media artists, or I did a year abroad in Paris where I did interior design, etc. So I always was seeking that, that it's like any design really, and then see what happens. (laughs) I, I won't dig. I, I will not dig in too much deeply into your education because, as you said, we have already mm-hmm. dug into a lot about what is studying in Vienna under Zaha Hadid. Yeah. Um, so I'm more curious about what happened next. So you studied there, and you said that that was mm-hmm. something that, in the end, led your way to London. 
did you just join uh, the office of Zaha right after your studies mm -hmm. or how did you move yeah. to London? It was pretty much that. So it was like my ticket to London was to work in the studio at Zaha's and I was there for about three years. I mean, it was a bit tough because it was recession back then in 2008. So the worst time uh, for everyone. And um, after three years, I mean, they did a lot of redundancies in that time as well. But then after three years, I knew that I don't want to stay in a big scale firm like that um, and just wanted to explore other ventures. And then I was at Uh, make I did a bit of freelancing as well so uh, another fun fact I'm also a trained actress <laughs> so I had a few years where I freelanced as an architect and was like in indie films or on stage as well I still sometimes do ADR sessions for like big Hollywood productions so that's kind of a, my Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde life and I think already then I knew I'm not happy with like just the one job you know and then in a big architecture firm you that's all you do because it's just like day and night day and night it's really hard to be a bit more flexible and interdisciplinary etc and explore other ventures so it took me quite a while about yeah 10 years of like being typecast basically as an architect and like you know acne space make able nap um i was at heatherwick for a bit as well And then Design House Liberty, where which is a young company. Um, I mean, by now they're like 10 years old. So they're yeah, not that young anymore. The founder is about my age. And I joined that when it was very much in the beginning, like a year in, and was design director. And I had more freedom there in terms of responsibilities. We did a lot of interior designs, a lot of installations. And I was running projects in London, but also in China. So I throughout the last three years of me being there, I was in charge of like huge projects in Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Hong Kong. So I was kind of commuting to China back and forth. But I also saw in that time that I still felt too tied up. You know, I felt like I there's more I want to research and explore on my own. So I decided the only way to do that, it's hard, you know, when you're working for someone else, you're still within that realm. Like you have to obviously follow their path and their vision and you can contribute to it, but you can't implement your own things to that extent. So I quit on an impulse um, end of 2019. Really clever as well, just after I bought a flat and had a mortgage. I mean, it's a very sensible thing to do, uh, especially because we had like no clients, a big network of people, because I'd been in London for a long time. But no actual projects, you know, it wasn't that I was like working on the side while I was um, working full time employed. I didn't do acting anymore, too. I mean, but this has a certain shelf life when you're a woman. It's <laughs> still reality. But also um, I was like, well, the only way for me to actually do what I want to do is to go, you know, cold turkey, just it's everything or nothing. So quit. And then. It started really in 2020 with the studio. So Lisa did a sabbatical. So I started on my own originally. And then she joined in the thick of COVID. So it was quite exciting yeah, to like quit with like no actual base, you know, uh, and then like knowing I'm not really going to do architecture. I knew I wanted to change scale and go more into like smaller scale projects where you can do more research and collaborate a lot with other artists or designers 
and see how you can join forces with other people because it's just more exciting that way, you know, rather than be a competition, be a collaboration and make it grow like that. But um, the first project was like during Christmas, an art consultant called me up and was like, hey, um, there's this pitch for Grosvenor, big developer in London. They own all of West London. And she's like, do you want to just um, do that pitch? Like we, we didn't even know each other well that agent and me and I'm like yeah sure and then in January just after Christmas we pitched together and I got the project I'm like okay it's gonna start somehow well and then COVID hit so that was the next exciting milestone <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about many things now that you've mentioned uh, but I'm gonna start with this uh, which one if you can answer quickly which one was the last office that you worked before quitting called Turkey uh, that was Design House Liberty Mm -hmm. um so they are they do more interiors than architecture mm -hmm. really interior design interior architecture and also furniture and products and installations and i quite like that aspect of it that i could you know work in like different scales and i really enjoyed managing the teams and working with the people there but it was still not like you know i there wasn't really much in terms of it was they do beautiful things, but I wanted to do more experimental things mm. than what I could do there and uh, like do my own research. I'm curious because this is a recurrent topic that I notice in my guests is that a lot mm -hmm. of you guys have these amazing careers and amazing backgrounds across these incredible offices which are cutting edge. The most famous one you mentioned among the all experiences you had. Zaha Adit and Heather Wick Studio. Mm -hmm. What was for you the trigger in your career while working at this, as I said, amazing companies um, to think to start your own company? Because many people that are in other offices or studying architecture really dream about this. And mm -hmm. many of them, when they mm -hmm. achieve it, they disenchant with it and slowly move into different directions. So yeah. what was your trigger to start a different direction? I think it was because where I was working and I was meant to become partner, etc., and it was just not quite happening. And I thought, you know what? I, I, I knew already I wanted to leave the company, but I thought I had so much responsibility there And I, I just felt like it was more the trigger was the experience of like, well, 12 years really of working for other people where I realized as long as I, so it wasn't one trigger. It was, I think, a long buildup, a long growing buildup that suddenly led me to the impulse of being like, I just, the only way that would work that I can do what I want to do is if I don't do it for someone else, but do it for me. So... I mean, the trigger was probably to be like, yeah, I think I'm, I think I need to change job. And then where would I go? In the end, it would always turn into the same again. Like you work there, you have a time. And I think it's a certain type of person, you know, I think it's a, a character thing, really. I see that a lot because a lot of my, most of my friends here uh, work in amazing companies and they're happy, you know, in management positions or design or lead design roles, etc and there's not very many of my close friends who take the plunge because it's also hard in London like realistically you know it's it's a very expensive city 
uh, it's a high risk to do that because you are suddenly depending, like you don't just get a salary. Um, so it, a lot of my friends and close colleagues were telling me before for years, you should start your own thing. You should start your own thing. And I think they saw that in me long before I saw it. Um, and I always had a million excuses. Why not? Which were mainly, you know, rational, sensible financial <laughs> excuses. And then at some point it's like, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. You know, what can go wrong? Worst case, I do freelance jobs and I did that as well. Every now and then, you know, I was doing freelance jobs as well on the side. And it takes a while until when you build your studio, it takes ages, you know, until you make money, make enough money. And it's a lot of luck as well involved. Just because you know people, it doesn't mean you get the projects, you know. Yeah, that's a and different, die, that's a different thing. Uh, no, yeah. it's... And I'm curious, how did you deal with the pressure and the stress of this um, quitting, as you said, without uh, having a project already? And also you mentioned you have had this commitment with an apartment in London, which I guess it's expensive. Did you have savings and you had a runway and you said like, I don't know, I can live without any earnings for 10 months and then I can worst case scenario go back to at work at some office because I mean you don't have a problem to get another job or what was your plan because it's a very as you said it's a yeah. more like a uh, it feels like you had this really need to do it and it was like the time to just whatever it did it takes yeah. to do it yeah. so I didn't have savings or a rich partner which some people have like <laughs> i like how you say it i love this yeah <laughs> and um i basically thought well because before you know when i did the architecture acting bit i was working through headhunter agencies so there was a time in london for a few years where i worked through agencies and like got shorter term freelance jobs where you get a much higher day rate so i was like this is my survival mode and then you can, uh, for like, you work for a few months where you can earn more and then just make sure it's not that common in architecture really because the projects go much longer, but you can do that in interiors, for example, to be hired on a project basis. So my plan was always to just do that, you know, kind of have two jobs, which is exhausting. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you want to, you'll make it work. And so that's how in the very beginning I did it. But then when COVID hit, I couldn't, like, everything shut, right? So I was lucky enough to actually, like, live with my partner and I could rent out my place. Uh, and that's all due to the pandemic. Otherwise, I probably would have kept doing freelance jobs. And like this, we were just suddenly in lockdown and a friend of mine needed a place to stay. So it was coincidence that it fell into pieces that I could have my, at least the mortgage covered, you know, and those costs, um, and then um, when it opened up again, back to the flat and then just see, you know, sometimes do two jobs at a time, depending on how it goes with our projects as well. Sometimes you need a top up or it just goes with this company. Somehow it fluently, you know, managed itself. <laughs> One thing that it's a big advantage of working at a company is that you have sort of everything set up for you when you go to the office uh, you just uh, have to perform, so to say. You have to do your mm -hmm. job. And um, starting your own office the first day, I guess, it's like, I don't know. 
everything it has to be built up. What was for you the process yeah. to set up like among the all the things you have to do as a founder of a company from the legal parts where you need to set up a company, do the website, do the workflows. How mm -hmm. did this stage of your starting up look like? So luckily in the UK, it's very easy uh, to start a company, an LTD. It's much easier than I think most other countries. And you have the advantage that you don't need to pay extra. Like in Austria, you have to, uh, it's much harder and you have to insure yourself and pay a few hundred a month just to have like health insurance, etc. when you're self-employed. Whereas here, it's, it's probably more of a capitalist system of like free market as well which has the advantages that you can uh setting up a company is like five minutes and costs you 50 pounds you know and the rest um i already had contacts with like you know accountants those kind of things so from my previous experience freelancing so i used that and everything else kind of it's hard because you need to it's a chicken and egg situation you know you somehow need to show your work, so they know what they're going to get from you. Otherwise, they're not just going to commission you, unless you've already been working on the site while being employed. It's literally from scratch with, like, ground zero. And, I mean, thank God I knew a lot of people in London, but I still had to start with a portfolio of works, um, especially by not doing architecture but suddenly changing scale and going more into product, furniture, installation design. It was lucky that I got that first project immediately like one week into having the company without even having a website then or nothing it's like you need to quickly have at least an Instagram page I'm like, what do you even show on the Instagram page you know I have nothing to show yet so it was kind of when I haven't thought about it for a while but actually yeah it's come a long way of like finding you just make up things like this is what I want to do and show your visions and your dreams that you want to create. And then once they start coming into fruition, okay. And you need to have a portfolio of works to show off your own works to get further projects. COVID worked um, in our favor, I think, in the respect that everyone sat still at home. So you had no time pressure. I mean, there was the pressure of, will we ever get out of this? Like what will happen to the world? So, you know, we all know the pressures of COVID, but um there was time to build a website. There was time to build a narrative and look into, you know, easy, easy, what can you actually do? Because especially when you don't do architecture, but more like product design, there's certain design shows that you have to show it. And that is uh, there's certain people or showrooms, galleries that you should be showing at or represented by just to be legit and to count as like a professional designer, especially if you want a certain market and a certain target of like collectible or high-end design, you just need that stamp. It's a, it's a marketing thing really, you know, and it also is an investment because that is not for free and you don't get paid for showing there. Um, so in this time, at least there were no shows. So I had time to, you know, get together with the whole network and build up, a kind of narrative around what it is we'll do. Um, and then the very, and luckily enough, I had that first project that did launch within between the lockdowns. And in 2020 also Dubai, you know, you have to look for the opportunities where 
it's almost like there's no food here now. It's like being a nomad walking through the desert. There's no food here. We have to walk somewhere else to find the food. So Dubai, for example, was more open during COVID than anywhere in most parts of the world. And they just have to pick out the opportunities like to get a body of works. Where can they happen while it's a pandemic and while nothing works? So Dubai Design Week was happening and we did a collaboration. I knew the people who run Dubai Design Week and they were very happy to have us there to do an installation. But again, it's not paid. So a lot of it is like in the beginning, you do a lot for visibility um, and you really invest yourself, like your time and your work into it. And if you're lucky, you can get a nice partnership or collaboration which we did with Core Creative and did a 3D printed sculptural installation for Dubai Design Week. So we had like within 2020, despite the pandemic, two installations which could be shown between the lockdowns and a new product, like the liked product, which was somehow whenever the workshops could open, being produced, then shut down again. So I mean it was a pain, but how much <laughs> very how- exciting. How much of your time in the beginning was spent on actually designing and how much on the t- of the time was actually spent on contacting all the people you know and trying to land these first projects? I think, well, in the beginning, I think it's always you spend more time on all those admin management communication things than you do on design. Even now, I'd say like 80% of the time or 90 is like everything else but design. Because just because you have your first projects, you know, you have to constantly keep going and you have to get jobs in. So there's one part which is like getting the jobs in. We also don't have a PR agency, so we do our own marketing and PR and uh, we, the good thing is, you know, when Lisa joined, it took a bit the load off because she's doing more the operations, finance, admin side, and I'm doing the marketing side and the 3D modeling for the designs we do. I mean, that was also actually the one reason why we got really into the 3D printing is because it's actually easier for us with the skills that I have. And it's also a COVID baby. When workshops closed, robots could still work. It was easier for them to operate because... You need less human interaction. And with the whole Zaha background, etc., you know, complex 3D modeling is just like we're trained to do that. <laughs> so it's always the easiest way to, to work with least, not least effort. It's a lot of effort coordination still, but different coordination. And um, yeah, it's design work. It's funny. It's like, you know, when you said now, when you go to your, when you work for someone you're employed, you go and perform, bam, that's it, the day finishes. And here, the day never finishes. Like, you always somehow perform or you go for a walk and suddenly have an idea or you're like, oh, I should write this person. Or, And it's the only way to actually have a business around it is this lateral thinking of constantly connecting the dots and everything's an opportunity. Everyone you meet is like, oh, my God, we could do this together. Oh, you do that. And like, and it's the most random it can be the most random situations, experiences, and people you would never expect. Um, like, and they can lead to something, or just because of what they say, they inspire you to do something. And say, "Hey, let's just do that together." Oh, yeah, why not? 
you know, and collaborations or projects happen. So there's a lot of this, which is no one would ever see when you're like working in a, in a studio environment where you think the work is the design. Uh, it is the, it's the nice fun bit, which I like to on weekends and at night mainly. <laughs> it's, it's not much more time usually. <laughs> what other skills you needed to learn uh, in these times? You mentioned marketing, PR. Did you know these things by the jobs you have done because you were in more re leadership positions? Or you had to also like educate yourself. You mentioned also opening your social medias and deciding what to post on mm -hmm. there. That's a whole other job compared to actual design, as we said. So did you need to yeah. also read a lot into these things? And is it uh, scary to need to learn something while you need to actually achieve results? Because, I mean, you have to turn it into a business. I mean, I think the scary bit was always will it actually lead to something? But the most important thing is, I think it's like, a, you know, that's the Austrian in me. When you're a professional skier, when he does the race, he doesn't think about falling. If you think about falling, you're not going to do the race because then you block yourself with fear. So you just got to do it and just run and do the race. And then you might fall and you will fall. <laughs> But, you know, pick yourself up. But with the learning curve, I was quite lucky that... Um, both for one, the leadership position I had before, where I was very client-facing, and the founder is really, like, amazing at sales. It's just her personality. And what she sniffed out in me as well was that I'm very much, I like people, I'm very, like, uh, sociable, and also I really like public speaking, um, which is weird. <laughs> But, um, so those things you can kind of hone, and it's a lot of it is a personality thing. But also, I learned a lot in that role. And my partner at the time has also his own business, a creative business that do crazy stuff like Bompers and Par. You can check them out. They do like experiential design, etc. And he's been running his own business for a long time, like 13, 15 years. And although the same age, and he gave me a lot. And there are also two guys who started it with kind of, you know, complementary skill sets. So he gave me a lot of input and I saw, I learned a lot just by being there and like passive, uh, you know, noticing how he works and how he would just spend a whole Sunday morning just emailing people with ideas of, oh, I thought we could do that, 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 that and constantly following it. So I, I had my like mentors in a way without knowing I had them. And just soaked up all that information by observing how they roll. And the rest, you then learn with time. Um, you know, you see what works for you and how. And like, because it's very much with those things, I think a personality thing that there's only so much you can learn. And a lot of it is like, I think it's the same with designing. A lot of it is the talent you have. Like, not everyone can make the same shapes or would have the idea. And it's the same here. Not everyone would have. Uh, the personality to approach someone that way or see them and immediately see that there's an opportunity everywhere, you know? Mm. I totally can understand that. And um, what you mentioned uh, um, very often now during our conversation is that you were also lucky to have that first project, that first invitation to this pitch. 
what was the mm-hmm. topic of the pitch and i'm also curious you mentioned also your skills uh, and passion for public speaking is do you think that uh, your skills as an actress also help you in these situations to present your idea to develop the story of your idea because uh, i think that sometimes we are passionate about things that doesn't seem very related to design or architecture but somehow in some point of your life you think oh this is kind of nice that i know how to do that yeah i think it's true what you said like i have a lot of designer or architect friends also in the big companies who also are djs or musicians and for example and i think it really enriches you to do other things or like one of my best friends here who's um also associate with Zaha, and she's a pole dance instructor. I mean, acrobatics, you know? Like, so I have a few, uh, I think it helps you when you have also other interests, but not just like hobbies almost, do you know, pursue them as well and really go for that. And I think definitely the acting bit, I just uh, always loved performing or being on stage and there was always this like conflict of do I go into the performing or the applied arts and then I picked the applied arts for a job because it's kind of the safer bet and longer shelf life and kind of less risk still but the performing art bit um, comes in definitely every time you do a pitch every time you go to an event networking or are do a talk are on a panel etc um, that whole training around that helps because you also learn how to deal with, you know, stage fright and you need a bit of that. You need to be a little bit nervous because then you perform better because the adrenaline gets you going. Um, and then once you're on stage, I mean, it just rolls. <laughs> it just has to. Um, but yeah. And with that first project, for example, the good thing was that this um, sort of art agent who approached me, she's called Zoe Allen. The company is called Artistic Statements. And she works with a lot of big developers here in London. So the big developers in London are all bit in competition to each other for placemaking projects to generate footfall. Um, can you, I think it's a bit noisy in my background. Is it okay? I hear very well. No. It's fine. Okay, okay good. So basically, um, they all do those, it's more like a marketing strategy that they do pitches for installations, placemaking interventions in public realm or private for their new developments or for new areas that they create. And this is one of our revenue streams to constantly do pitches and work with like big developers here. And um, I already knew back then that I want to go well, not just different scale, but also combine, go more into circular economy in terms of what are the materials we use, you know, how can you upcycle and recycle things so it's more purposeful and not just a pretty piece of art or furniture, but there's actually a purpose behind how it's made and also how is it used after. You know, the art installation shouldn't just be there for those two weeks where and originally they said... It's a pitch in Belgravia in a new square that they have. It's called the Secret Garden of Belgravia. There was like no greenery there. And it's going to be up for two weeks for Earth Day. Anything sustainability. And you often get briefs like that. So as an architect, you think about the context and you think about the site and what is around, the urban fabric around it. So developed this concept of having an urban forest bath within that square that fitted really nicely within the layout of the square 
and offered the people, if it's called Secret Garden, bring some garden in there, right? It was like a spiral of greenery with wooden planters, basically, which were made of recycled timber from construction sites. So they're, they're all repurposed. And they were built in a way that they would like envelop the people with different greenery from like smaller shrubs to big trees. And you would enter that spiral. There was seating involved as well. So you can sit in there. Uh, there was a central planter with soil and you could plant seeds. So we had a little box with seeds because, you know, in London, not everyone can have a garden. And in between we had mirrors. Mirrors, always hot tip for installations. Everyone takes selfies. So just add a few mirrors and easy special effect, <laughs> cost effective. So, and you had facts about why a healthy natural environment is so important for your well-being. And that was pre-COVID. So, um, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the, the mirrors and, are also a great marketing tool for your installation because if people take selfies, they put yeah. it on Instagram. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they promote it. Yeah. So it promotes itself through that. Uh -huh. And so it became really popular. Like the, the developers loved it. I mean, it obviously went on hold when the lockdowns hit. Uh, and then I think because of the topic, because it was like pandemic people in that area, it was very urban. It's like in West London, there is not so much greenery and you weren't even allowed. Really appreciated the theme of having an urban forest bath, a place of greenery, which is outside that people can actually use. And it's all about well-being and nature. I mean, it just kind of made sense. It was really bizarre to have that, you know, idea before knowing there will be a pandemic, but we were lucky because they kept that project on. And now it was built in a way that it can be reconfigured. And it was so popular with the people there that instead of two weeks, it stayed up for two months. And then they commissioned us to reconfigure it in another part of the square forever. So it's actually a permanent installation there now. And people really use it in their lunch breaks or like, you know, it's quite nice to see that, that it worked full circle. And in this first period, you always use this term, we, were you alone? Or did you have a, because you said your partner was for a year away, did you work with freelance people or how did you manage to deliver the project? Did you do it all by yourself? Um, so she joined in like June time. So this one I did pretty much by myself originally. I think the we is more, uh, it was very collaborative with the guys who built it, the fabricators. Mm -hmm. um, you're never alone in those things, you know. It was also with the client both the agent but also the client was really involved in terms of the narrative and like all their sign-offs, even if it was small. And then Lisa joined in in summer. She joined the company and then she obviously also was involved in uh, helping with, you know, we had like, because it's an area which there's retail and residential. When you install that, you have to start at 3 a.m. <laughs> and make as little possible so it's very hands-on you just go there and build it yourself with the guys who with your fabricator guys so there is always a we i think no matter what you do mm. it's always a teamwork yeah, yeah, yeah it's always a teamwork and you mentioned that the re the biggest reason for you to start your own studio your own company was the will to do experimental work in a certain way that you wanted uh, recently i 
saw this um, very funny, you know, remake of the famous uh, sentence in designs that uh, form follow functions and functions was like crossover and it was written uh, form follow values. Uh, I'm curious, uh, one thing that I learned on this podcast is that the most interesting part to understand a designer is to understand their design philosophy because everyone has their own design philosophy, something that sometimes unconsciously you appreciate and you you value. So I'm curious, I understood so far that one of your values of your design philosophy is this uh, reusability and sustainability. Um, can you explain what are the values of your design philosophies and also your design um, approach uh, of the idea of design, like uh, how you want to impress the users or spectators of your designs or even, I don't know, the people who sit on your chairs. What is the idea of your design? So I think to explain that best is probably one thing I didn't really mention is what we actually do. <laughs> I mean, it's furniture installations, etc. But everything we do, and that is then, like I kind of rushed over it when I mentioned Dubai Design Week 3D printed installation, it's always using different kinds of robotic fabrication. So I think it's also the value within the design or the, it becomes part of the philosophy. It's the research of repurposing both the materials, always doing new research into what kind of, you know, organic waste, food waste, industrial waste um, can be used to then uh, be turned into filament or pre uh, pellets, etc., and use different kinds of uh, advanced fabrication, different kinds of robotics to produce the pieces. Which so one value is definitely the circular economy in terms of what are the materials, and we work very closely with material scientists and researchers, like a lot in the Netherlands. They're really big on that, mm -hmm. and also in the UK. And then the different fabricators you work with who. When you print, it's actually much more efficient because you never need a mold or a formwork. You only use the material you really need. And because the software uh, that is used with all the partners we have, they basically use the AI Sync software, which is also two ex-Zaha guys who started AI Build. And I think Michael, one of the founders, he introduced me to Mariana at a party. So <laughs> that's how we all connected all the ex-Saha architects somehow. It's a tiny world. But so, you know, AI um, simulates the process of the print before, so you omit the prototyping or, like, you reduce it. So it's minimum, it's very, very efficient in terms of, like, the purpose of a piece rather than just being a pretty lamp is the story behind it and, like, how is it made and why is it made in this particular material for this particular project always very context driven and i think that's more the architect side than thinking about the bigger picture rather than a product designer who thinks about the context but isn't trained that way naturally you know um so for example we did a project in austria in the west where i'm from which is very much uh it's alpine it's pretty great for skiing etc but also really progressive when it comes to architecture and design and um innovation, sustainability. There's a lot of big industry there. Uh, some Global Lighting or Alpla who make like plastic packaging worldwide. Doppelmeier who make all the ski lifts worldwide. So they're really, really big corporations who work globally and um, it's wealthy as well, thanks to the Swiss proximity. 
So we're like, hmm, spoke to the director of the uh, architecture institute there in the town. And I was like, hey, I'm from here, but in London, this is like a little intro, what we do. Can we do a show together? And she's like, yeah, great. And we already had a few pieces that we just developed throughout. That was in 21. So within those first two years, we have developed pieces for competitions or also commissions by developers who started seeing what we do and liked that material research aspect. And because it's new and it's new technology, innovative, it doesn't exist to that extent yet, you know. So the pieces we had were like, we'll bring to Austria and we'll do a show with them. And as we were prepping that and looking for sponsors, a local construction company called us up and said, we saw you had this Dubai project and design week with 3D printed concrete. Now we started 3D printing concrete for construction, large scale. Uh, would you like to do something together? We've never done furniture or like, you know, it would be nice to do a collab. I'm like, sure, let's do it. So this was, again, the context. And that's how a piece got created of like, for one, where does it go to? It's in the Austrian Alps. So the contour bench, which is this like mm-hmm. um, wavy concrete, 3D printed concrete bench. For one, it reflects the mountainscape. And then it's built by layers, which are contour lines. That's how mountains are made. But also we added different pigments. And the reason for that, so the robot spits it out randomly. So the pieces always have a different pattern and it's every time unique. It's the creative freedom of the robot. And the reason for that is that particular area of Austria has the highest variety of different sediments geologically within a small, very, very small area. It's like the smallest state of Austria, you know. And this variety of the sediments and those layers is represented in the piece, you know, by the layering and by the different pigmentation within a bench in the end. And the reason it was the size it is, the original one, is because it had to fit in the lift and not too heavy then um, we immediately got commissioned after the launch by the capital uh, for a few of them in a new public round project they did along the lake of constance and it fits really nicely there uh, because you have the mountainscape on one side you have the lake and then like along the lake so you can sit there enjoy the sunrise etc so it's quite and I tied it in nicely with the local context. And sometimes we get commissions. Yeah. No, it's amazing yeah. that uh, there is such a big story in a bench that uh, most of the people yes. have seen uh, <laughs> just by scrolling through Instagram or just by seeing it randomly. Yeah. But then uh, that's the beauty of design that sometimes uh, you go beyond this superficial appearance that there is in magazines and yeah. uh instagram and you don't question like a lot of people superficially say oh yeah another crazy shape bench uh whatever uh but the but but the poetics and the story behind it it's just uh very pretty very beautiful thank you yeah and it's like i think with all the pieces we do we like to create and build a story and think about who is it for and why and that also drives the material we use down to the technology that's used down to the shape. You know, it's all one thing. They, sh- I think they shouldn't be seen separately. Like we did this blue bench. The, that was the first thing we did with AI build actually. Um, 
2021 for Milan Design Week when it was just between lockdowns, the first time it happened again. And we participated in Rosano Landi's Guiltless Plastic Prize. Uh, it's a very like iconic gallery in Milan. I'm like, wow, if we can get in there. Um, and we just about started out. We need this kind of stamp, you know, to be a legit designer and be associated with the right people within that context. Um, so we participated in the competition and we're like, let's print something because we knew already that would be easiest for us. And we found a social enterprise in Amsterdam called Reflow. They do material different waste that they source um, and then turn it into filament. So in this case, they used medical plastic tray waste, which was also quite contextual within that time. And it's beautiful, like the it looks like glass a bit, and you can add pigments to it as well. So we picked that particular material. They introduced us actually to AI Build. So I didn't even know them through Saha because we didn't overlap. And then we realized, oh, we're all like raised the same way, basically. <laughs> so we um, we did that piece together with them. And they normally don't do production. You know, they're not fabricators, they're software engineers. They do prototyping, but for NASA, Boeing, Formula One. And they only took this one on because it was a double curved, quite complex geometry. And you don't print double curved, you print a straight extrusion. And for this, they had to reconfigure their toolpaths, print it onto a mold. I mean, it was very challenging. Um, is, is this why I them. think I saw you once on a Formula One race? Ah, that was a different funny story. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that was that was it's actually a funny. It, it was an epic story because it was you and the Wolf of Wall Street, but the real one. <laughs> yes, the real one, the real one. That was that was very random. It's a random story. I because um, because of the nature of what we do, you know, a lot. It's digital fabrication. I tend to dibble a lot in the tech world because. Um, why just stay within design, creative industries? It's interesting to learn from others. So um, a friend of mine is one of the founders of GP Bullhound, big venture capitalists who also invested in Spotify and Klarna, etc. And he invited me to attend a conference they did in Marbella. <laughs> Very nice setting. Um, and I was on two panels there uh, because it was all like three days, 130 investors and tech entrepreneurs, etc. And we were maybe five people who weren't in tech directly. I mean, I still was on the panels because it was about technology and sustainability and et cetera, those kind of topics. So it fitted in. Um, and it was really exotic for them because, you know, when techies talk about a product, they mean the digital product. And our idea of product is very different or developers for us are property developers. For them, it's a developer of <laughs> whatever app they're doing. So that's quite funny. Um, but also I met a lot of other people there. I was like, oh my God, this is like 130 extroverts and most of them with ADHD, um, but all very like on it and very easy to get to know, like very fascinating people and super like, I was on a panel with the chief environmental officer of Microsoft. I mean, there were like very high flying people there. And one girl I met over dinner was like, we were meant to fly back to London. And she's like, I mean, they were from all over the world. But she's like, you know, do you want to come to Monaco and watch the Grand Prix on a super yacht? I got invited. I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we flew to Nice, <laughs> where we got picked up by a driver. And then we got onto that super yacht, which is James Packer, like Australia's biggest billionaire. And we just spent a few days there. And we watched the Grand Prix with the Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, there were some other celebrities. I'm not allowed. I don't know if I can, I'm allowed to really say who else was there. Um, but it was a really nice environment. I mean, don't say it on camera. We know about the Wolf of Wall Street. Maybe you can tell me later exactly. off camera, but don't tell it on camera. <laughs> off the record. But, but I, the Wolf, is that was legit because he, he, he and his wife also posted selfies with us. So I know <laughs> it's official that we were there. But um, the funny thing is as well, which goes back to you never know who you meet and where and don't judge a book by its cover i met this like very beautiful blonde girl on i mean on a boat right in monaco and you start chatting and then we talk about what we do and she's like oh my god you do like 3d printing da, da, da. and she's actually an environmental engineer who's been working in an ai for an ai for like 14 years and all this research and she uh, is a works on bioreactors started a new company bioreactors for biomaterials for 3d printing and we she's in london so we meet up we became friends but we also were like she was on a panel because i introduced her to people here that would be good for her you know during design festival part of our show so it suddenly you never know who you meet and what it leads to it i mean apart from a friendship also those connections that you just wouldn't expect you know and what comes I think out of it i think it's always good to get to know some big billionaires that might spend money on design <laughs> yes i mean that's definitely a good idea <laughs> yeah you should you should exactly be nice to everyone because they might be a big billionaire who <laughs> will just you know commission you for the next thing this is <laughs> awesome this is awesome and you mentioned that you guys uh, it's um, embedded into your design philosophy that you work a lot with the robots and the ai and the machines how do you um, organize yourself basically you are the mind and then you send the production to your partners or these external companies that cooperate with you or do you have also your own workshop with a few robots and 3D printers and you do also some productions yourself for testing? Um, so it's all outsourced because once you start having your own robots and machines, that's a completely different investment. Like then you need, act like we have no overheads really, minimum overheads. We don't even have an office or studio space. Uh, we just need you know, and we have uh, the nice thing when you have, when you outsource the production for us is more flexibility because sometimes we work with like large scale ABB or KUKA robots for bigger, bigger installations, which are different workshops and fabricators. And then sometimes, you know, a, a guy who prints with concrete won't print with plastic or here in London, we have, we work with FabPub that's by Arthur Mamoumani, um, his fabrication lab. And with them, we do everything with sugar or sugar and wood, and they're really close by. So I constantly stock them in the workshop because I like live next to it pretty much. Um, and it's just for us easier in terms of flexibility and experimentation. And they always use different robots as well. So you know that 
you can't always achieve the same thing, you know. If you do something with clay, with a wasp robot, you can do maximum maybe a meter. If you do something out of like PLA from sugarcane, um, there's structural attributes that you can't apply to, you know. It depends. It's like with, with traditional um, manufacturing, glass and concrete aren't the same thing. And it's the same here. And you'll have different robots printing different things with different materials. So for us, it's nice that way. And we obviously don't need that big investment because we both, like Lisa joined me just like, you know, from scratch. We both didn't have a big backing. We don't have investors, etc. It's all running on commissions from hand to the mouse, basically. <laughs> and um, also, yeah. One thing that uh, lately I've been reading is the biography, the new biography of Elon Musk. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the most interesting parts of the book, um, it's that the actual difficulty into making a product like Tesla, for example, or the rockets for SpaceX, is not so much inventing them. It is actually inventing a way to produce them on scale and make them affordable to buy for a large um, amount of people. Do you also, because you mentioned also how robots always achieve a different result and everything, it's a little bit different mm -hmm. every time. When you work with these um, partners, for example, the benches and the chairs you have developed, do you also stay long enough to figure out a scalable way of producing it or is it rather meant to be so like niche and very like lower amount of production like lower numbers we would rather keep it lower because then it's more that's more a term also of we'd rather be within the market of collectible high-end design and be associated within because it's kind of between art and design what we do and can be also seen as an art installation so we want to stay in that bracket and once you do even now Uh, some galleries wouldn't take us on because for them they think we're too um we're not it's not bespoke enough for example although mm. so we're, we're like we wouldn't really want to go into a mass production mm -hmm. but that said if like a, a boutique hotel or a hospitality venue would commission us to do like um a bespoke light for their hospitality venue and it's 500 keys we would definitely happily do 500 lamps and get a big order and you know so so hotels out there commission those 500 lamps <laughs> yeah yeah so hotel please <laughs> commission us so we 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 would do a series of several like larger scale and bigger bulk But we wouldn't want to become IKEA. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's um, yeah. doable to be IKEA. But uh, for example, with these yeah. uh, benches and chairs, I'm also curious how does it work with the revenue? I don't know how many of them there were printed. I guess some of them were sold. Do you get like a commission to design them, or do you get also a commission mm -hmm. on each sold piece? So it's both. Um, so some of them, for example, the contour bench that we didn't have in, to invest into the production, that was like a risk. We have some products which we just did self-initiated because we wanted to. And usually we were lucky enough to partner up. Most of those companies are startups like the Cocoon Light, which is 3D printed sawdust, which is like the big version of this necklace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
it's made by this new company called Forest, who already shut down but have their own another new company. Uh, but they're the only ones who print with sawdust and bind it with lignin. And for example, we have a few self-initiated projects where we're just like there was the opportunity of a show, um, like Guiltless Plastic or Austria, or we're really interested in wow. This is the, no one has ever printed with that material and that technology before. We want to try it. And it's a pioneer project. And then we partner up with them, create something, and we make the revenue of the sales. And uh, like we were lucky with the bench, for example, that immediately, as soon as it was launched, people wanted to buy it. Like the city commissioned us for that. Showrooms started buying it. And, um, with the lighting, it's usually more like private clients. So you can just buy the pieces directly from us. And we're also on an e-commerce platform called First Dips, which is very like luxury e-commerce, high-end. And it's mainly US, but also here in the UK, like all the interior designers use it. So um, the part of that, and you can just directly buy, buy through them or us. Or uh, we have some of the pieces which... There's like those swivel stools, which is um, the 3D, the stools and planters, the 3D printed sugar and wood fiber. And this was a big developer here in London. They do all of Greenwich Peninsula. That's a whole new plan, uh, like huge master plan, whole new part of London, 25 year master plan. And they commissioned us for one of their developments there on this new peninsula to do an accessories range, you know, it's small, but big impact. So we de designed particularly for this development, stools, planters, little bowls. It's all the same shape, but slightly scaled or slightly twisted and printed with different materials or with different finishes added. So this was a commission, which then works like a service. We want that. This is our budget. Make it work to that bump. So we have a bit of, or we did a landscape design project in Brixton. So those pieces that were shown in Dubai, Design Week, we then brought to London. We know the people who, like a lot of those furniture showrooms we know, so Minotti in London, we did a put them in their showroom, did a big party with them with a talk that was 21 between the lockdowns, had the pieces in their showroom for a year. Suddenly they were not art, but furniture. And then spec them for our landscape design project which we were designing so for that landscape project we designed all the outer furniture ourselves and printed it and basically commissioned ourselves you know for the pieces we do i think that's the party where i actually first saw you with mariana is it that possible that could ah uh, i don't think i knew her back then I saw you the first time. I, uh, I think you did a pop-up store or something in London where you get a yes. like you did, did a yeah. sort of an opening party, and yes. uh, I was like, "Who is this other stardom <laughs> uh, girl from design that Mariana knows?" And f yeah. from there on, I started following you and and follow your work. Yeah. So I think that you've was... done quite a few of those. Yes. So that's kind of our USP now. Because, um, you know, we don't have a showroom, we don't have an office, the pieces need to be shown, otherwise no one knows. It's different, you can have only so much online presence, people need to see it in person. So since Minotti, um, they basically tour like a band. Mm -hmm. I started, I'm going to make us those t-shirts with the band tour dates, because it's ridiculous. Every few months, and the showrooms uh, and institutions ask us by now, 
to display them because it works really well for both, you know. They're quite like the super high end. They have a big network. We also have a big network also of other people. I mean, we're friends with all those like Zaha Heatherwick directors, editors of Wallpaper and Design are our friends. So it's like, it's a good, you know, uh, profile. Um, we bring our pieces there, uh, do a little talk, an event, a party, and then they stay on display for a few months. Then sometimes we do more programming, like organize panel talks, um, organize a closing event, or like do, you know, get, invite someone else to do a talk, like Arthur, et cetera, or like the head of interiors at Heatherwick. So, and then we basically already booked up until October next year <laughs> with the shows. So, uh, they also cover the logistics and handling fee, etc. So we generate a bit of revenue through that as well. And it's quite, it's fun. Designers don't, you know, they're usually a bit introvert and prefer to sit in the, mm. you know, yeah. you have to be in the zone to design. So I think it's refreshing for all. We exchange networks. We got projects on top of those things as well because of it, because you meet new people who are then aware of you. And it's really nice to know we're being invited, you know, like Moroso, Gagenau, Edge, which is a biophilic design showroom. At the moment, we're at the Austrian Cultural Forum. Um, that funny pop-up we had, uh, that was also like another, like kind of very serendipitous story where we had an installation at Gagenau in a shop window that was a competition for London Festival of Architecture. And at one of the events they did during the LFA, we met developers from Great Portland and Crown Estates who really loved our work and invited us to have this pop-up for one month in October in Piccadilly Arcade, super posh, expensive area of London. And they're like, yeah, uh, you can have that for free and display your pieces and it's basically your shop. And all the other shops there were like um, tailors, perfumers, very old school English, like beautiful craft and we were there with our like 3d printed pieces like a gallery and this normally when we do events it's hosted by the showroom we get content and people but they host it and here we had to do our own launch party well we wanted to you know if you get that opportunity of such a space we had zero budget um because it was self-initiated we had the space for free which you know would have been like, I don't know, 2,000 pounds for that month, I think. <laughs> and so... How um, many thousand? It, it, got... it lagged for a second. How many thousand pounds would be the space for a month? I think 20. Oof. I think it would be 20 for a month in that area. And it's like um, 15 square meters, you know, 20 square meters. It's tiny. R ridiculous. <laughs> and so ridiculous. But we did this like launch event where we got sponsored by number three gin uh, that's thanks to my friend in hospitality who introduced me to them and they really want to get into the design world so i'm like you'll meet everyone there because all the design world will come to the party and they actually did i think 100 people 70 to 100 we were allowed to have and would fit in the space around 200 came we had a queue outside um and it was we had a friend of mine was a DJ. We had two photographers. We had a bouncer because you needed to have the guest list, you know, and really nice gin and tonic cocktails all evening long. So it was like kind of event and party planning is also a nice little side hustle to do. 
so we quite enjoyed that on top of everything else <laughs> what i'm curious is um you mentioned all the you know end result of your work uh the exhibitions the products uh, you mentioned uh, a little bit about the work itself that is this uh, deep research side of the job what are your main tools into creating your pieces is it like a parametric design with uh, grasshopper and rhino or what tools do you guys use to create uh, the, mm -hmm. the actual pieces so um i'm old school i just prefer hand modeling um so they're made by hand you know um I just, I think I prefer to have the, it's almost like more crafty for me, you know. I prefer the process of designing where I have the immediate influence without having to code it, etc. But there are obviously some what, of the What do you mean by hand modeling? Do you have like... Oof. As in Rhino. Rhino. Ah, okay. Rhino no, hand no, no, no. modeling, oh, no parametric. Yeah. Rhino, but not, it's not, it's, okay. yeah, it's all Rhino. And sometimes we have certain patterns where you can use, you would apply a grasshopper script, etc. But it's mainly all just done in Rhino, quite, yeah, okay. straightforward. And how do you, yeah. do you guys divide your task now that you're two people? Um, so Lisa is doing more, um, for one, like the admin finance side, logistics as well you know anyone mm. who's like asking to buy a few pieces goes through her um and she also you know when i mentioned the landscape design project for example or she does the design consultancy so we have a few projects which are like interior refurbishments etc where she's then in charge the like longer ongoing projects um And then she would also specify our pieces in there. And I do the all the 3D modeling, like all the everything that's 3D printed, all those designs are my babies. So the products basically and everything PR marketing, all those events and talks, that's that's then my side. So like this it's nicely split because otherwise if you have to, you know, you need different um, your brain works differently depending on what you need to do. Um, it's the same when like you have a day of you just designing, it's really hard to suddenly do communication. Mm -hmm. Or when you do a day of all meetings and comms, it's really hard to get into the mindset of in the zone of designing, I think. Yeah, personally. I can imagine that it's helpful to be this team of two, yeah. even if it's a small team, it's uh, yet very helpful to have two, yeah. two people. Um, and did you yeah. know each other for a long time before? Because I can imagine that also doing something like this, it involves having a lot of trust in each other. Uh, we worked together in the same company for five years where we had similar roles already. So we kind of worked in the same roles. It was almost like a dress rehearsal. <laughs> and um, so we knew that okay, this could be a good partnership because we complement each other with different skill sets. Yet we both went through running a business. It was someone else's business, but still, you know, we were managing it. So we knew we have the same experience level when it comes to the business side of things and management, which is also something not everyone I know gets the chance to do because it takes a long time, especially in a big company, until you reach that level of seniority where you can be so hands-on within management. Um, so we were lucky like that, that we found each other. 
I'm curious. Respect, yeah. You tell me the story about the jet set life now with your new practice and all the opportunities <laughs> that uh, come out of it and all the crazy stories that you have that are awesome to have. Is it uh, after the starting point till now came to a point where also the business is quite profitable for you to have a good life or is it the same as working for a company or is it better? I don't want to know numbers because it doesn't matter about yeah. the numbers, but it matters like how do you feel with it and what it's been achieved so far? Um, so on a good note, the thing is, I think when you have people often think that when I, as an architect, you don't make money unless you have your own company. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that out loud, you, but you, bullshit. When you have your own company, <laughs> you make less you will make always less money for yourself because the money we make, most of it is reinvested into the company to keep the ship afloat, you know? So financially you definitely make less in the first years. It can be like five to 10 years uh, until, you know, you make might reach a similar or more, etc. It depends. It's also a matter of luck and what projects you get, but we mainly work in a way of like, uh, all the, all the turnover we make basically pretty much goes into the company. And in terms of salaries, it was definitely more when you're employed. But still, I'd rather have that and the freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, as long as it works, it works. No, I'm asking this uh, again, not because I'm really curious about uh, numbers. I'm curious to know that, yeah. you know, so people that are living with the idea that uh, starting a company, it's going to be more profitable that they uh, don't understand yeah. it's not. Because I read a book about um, uh, how to win work as an architect and uh, it was written that uh -huh. um, according to the statistics of the German Union of Architects, if you're a solo architect, the uh, average uh, like salary you get before taxes is 4,500 euros, which is not much uh, if it's that's the average because it means yeah. that a lot of people get yeah. less and uh, it's a counterintuitive thing I, for example when i was uh, studying architecture and thinking about my career i had this thought that if you're really good you go to work for a, one of those famous offices and you get paid a lot <laughs> <laughs> but then i discovered <laughs> that it's the opposite <laughs> it's the opposite <laughs> It's literally, and it's everywhere. Also in fashion, the the more, you know, in, in Chanel, you will earn less than you would at H&M. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with an architect. The more uh, interesting and famous the brand, the less money you make. Mm -hmm. You always pay the price. Oh, my God, that's another thing, which is very annoying when you have, like, do your thing. Everyone wants things for free when you do creative because they're like, well, it's such a, you already have fun doing that. So why do you also need money? So everything's for like visibility, visibility, or you have to pay to do the work, which is my favorite with all those design shows and fairs. When people have installations that they show there, they did not get paid to do that. They need to find a sponsor or self-funded. So not only do you do the work for free? No, you also pay yourself mm. to do the work. So it's it's a weird 
something's wrong in the creative industry I, in that I, respect. I really, I was thinking um, that creatives, designers and architects are like football players. Uh, the best <laughs> always want to play for the best teams. But the best teams, instead, like in football, to pay them a lot of money and give them the greatest conditions, they actually give them the, the worst conditions, exactly the, the craziest money. That's so true. It actually doesn't make sense, no? No, like, no, no. How does that add up? It so doesn't make sense. I think it's so yeah. weird because, um, as you said, you didn't do the business because of money you did because you wanted to do a certain thing right you wanted to work on certain projects mm -hmm. and uh, we have this weird profession where we not only want to go to work and do our work and get our salary we want to do a work on certain things and um yeah for me it's a little bit difficult because uh i don't come from uh a, i don't know I mean, it doesn't need to be the case for you, but I don't come from a rich background. So my idea of studying architecture mm -hmm. was with the idea that I'm going to have a better life and make good money. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is my guidance uh, so far in the career. And I noticed that more I go to companies that don't do anything spectacular, but maybe it's more specialized. For example, now I work at a company that is specialized into research centers and pharmaceutical production buildings. Uh -huh, and I, uh -huh, I do uh -huh. the, I mean, and I, currently I work on a very interesting project and very also that it's going to turn out really interesting. But uh, I mean, if you do a laboratory or if you do a production uh, hall, it's yeah. not that you can do something crazy like Zaha did. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I get paid way better. <laughs> I have better conditions. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I'm like, do I need to want to compete with everybody to work at the yeah. Hadid or do I want to have a life? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's the thing. You have more money and more time. Yeah, right? and I can do more a podcast. Money. And that's that's the thing yeah. that I can. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, as you said, even if you work, at Zaha did or Heatherwick or any other big company and you get to be an associate and then you get to become a partner and then you're still mm -hmm. part of this big organization and you're not yes. free. You're never free. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I felt exactly. That's why I was like, when I quit, I'm like, if I go somewhere else, it would just be history repeating because I might, you know, I'd be probably on a more senior level and I would earn a little bit more. But, you know, I mean, I also thought when I started to study architecture, because I come from a family of not creatives and you have this cliche that architects make money, huh? <laughs> which you then <laughs> learn we don't <laughs> compared to other professions where you have to study so long and work so hard, you know, it's, just doesn't, it's not equal with doctors and lawyers. Um, but I also knew, well, if I go to another, like, there's so many exciting firms, etc. but in the end, it will be the same thing again. So do I really want to do that? Or do I just do what I, I want to do and see what happens? And I quite like that I still sometimes dip into, you know, take on consultancy roles or freelance jobs um, when I, like, want more money <laughs> basically and it, it works or actually you know those voiceover sessions um 
for big movies, uh, they pay really well. No, and you, and you do, you, you, do that, that. you do that. You have ever done a voiceover? You, yeah, sometimes I do that. Um, so I'm. It's quite funny. There's like um, only six Austrian actors here that do that. Uh, there's not many Austrians in general, I guess, but you know, uh, and they. For the big productions, they really use when they have a scene that's like filmed in Vienna and they need the background, the people, all the background people talking, they actually take really local people who are native speakers because we sound different to Germans, right? So yeah. when it's released somewhere, people will know, this. why Why is everyone in Vienna sounding like from Hanover? That doesn't make <laughs> sense, like, you know. So they're really, really strict and very detail-oriented uh, down to the dialect. So even for background scenes, and I did um, Mission Impossible 5 <laughs> and also <laughs> some like Amazon series and things. And you just get called into the studio for like half a day or day. And in half a day there, you make like what you do in a week as an architect. No, and all you do is talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I had a guest. Uh, I had a guest. Uh, she started her own company um architect that uh, left architecture and started a startup uh, for uh, relocating <laughs> talents and uh she <laughs> is uh, also very beautiful and she was modeling while working as an architect <laughs> uh she said modeling for women yet pays a little bit less because she was in italy and there are a lot of it, uh, <laughs> female models but still like she was like this is, was a good side hustle because you can actually earn um legit money yeah uh, yeah and exposing all these situations makes me feel like a little bit i don't know uh it feels seeing all these situations and, and makes me feel a little yeah. bit worried about the whole the whole industry and like the yeah. conclusion i'm having so far is like don't do it or i mean if you do it <laughs> do it as a hobby or something like that because um it's it's very yeah. difficult yeah, a lifestyle business. <laughs> I'm curious, one, one thing about all your experiences, because you have an amazing career and you have an amazing education, and now you have started this practice that's also very cutting edge. Um, looking backwards, if you had just studied at the university in Vienna with Zaha Adid, mm -hmm. and then you did a career in normal offices, like just architecture offices, maybe they do also interior design that are not uh, not so famous. I'm excluding the 3D printing company mm -hmm. because that definitely play, played a role for you. Do you think in mm -hmm. this stage of your life, looking back from the things mm -hmm. you learned at Zahadi, at Heatherwick, do you think that you could still have started this without having, having worked there? Mm -hmm. I don't, it's a good question. It's really hard to say. I don't know, actually, because I think a lot of the things that I've been doing, like that led us to the projects we do with 3D printing are also down to the people we met at those companies, you know, and the contacts you made. So um, it might be a different kind of company. I mean, eventually, because I think, like I said earlier, I think a lot of it is a personality thing, which I only really learned now by doing it or by meeting even all these techies in Malbaya who kind of are very similar people. Like there's this kind of 
crazy, slightly insane entrepreneurial founder gene that you have or don't have. But how did you get to Marbella? Was that through Zahadid and the former offices or? Not at all. That was a friend, uh, like totally separate. So I don't know many architects who also have friends in other industries so much. And I think I always, I didn't want to only stick to like the same, you know, in London, I always lived everywhere. Most creative experts live in East, Northeast. And now I live there too, but I always lived all over town. And I also always enjoyed having friends in different industries and fields and not just the designers and architects. So that is just a friend. Um, don't even know, remember how we met? But I think uh, just at the brunch, talking to someone randomly, and then we become friends. And he's like a big venture capitalist, and one leads to the other. So it's it's nothing to do. So those kind of things have nothing to do with the architects. But I think the three D printing arm has to do but, with the companies where I worked. But the three D printing was not also like at the biggest companies. You work in a company that was. Uh basically focus on on this specific uh, topic so let's say if you skipped uh Zahadid mm-hmm. and Heather weekend you went to work for this 3d printing company because um you wanted to dive deep into 3d printing that would that would have been enough and maybe if you have worked at uh, yeah. at, a, at a, an office in london and then you just attended all the events yeah. that are related to architecture you have Maybe you wouldn't have met can, the people working at Zahadid, but you would, would have met a lot of yeah. other people, right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm trying trying to ask yeah, these yeah. questions because, <laughs> I, I, it's again, I this is the 133rd podcast I'm doing here. And I've <laughs> talked to so many people and I came to the conclusion also by... Uh, in when we're in deeper conversation, we actually talk about hands-on work of architecture. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it's not that the Zahadid people or all other big offices you can imagine do some crazy stuff mm-hmm. that other people cannot do. It's just that they yeah. do it at this famous place. So I think, in, in yeah. or, or sometimes it's even more chaotic at the bigger offices. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it feels to me yes. that it's more like the. It's a nice to hear that you've worked there. It's so good, but actually, if it's life changing, I don't know. Maybe for the people you get to know. I don't know. Maybe, um, but the thing is, the people I got to know there, but also because I was like when I started there, and we were all so fresh, you know, all my best friends. We were like, I mean. Okay, this is like really, uh, I don't know if you ever heard the story, but when I started at Zaha, uh, the first half year, everyone who was new was a hot desker, so you didn't have a desk. You'd have to come in super early in the morning, wait a few hours until you get a desk assigned of someone who's not in or sick or something, and then just work overnight to get the work done. <laughs> don't know if I'm going to get like, lose all my Zaha contacts now. <laughs> But it's true. It is what it is. And it was like different to now that there's HR and, you know, health and safety and human rights. <laughs> yes, but I've heard no, all, all was... possible stories about these offices. Yeah. And in every one of these big yeah. offices, there is one little thing that sounds crazy to me. Uh, or cl- mm-hmm. uh, like points in your contract where I say like, wait, what? Like, 
Yeah. I don't know. It's uh... if you're not allowed to work in the industry for a year. That's all bullshit, though. So I have some lawyer friends who all said, at court, no one could execute that because they can't tell you to not work in the profession that you've learned. So yeah, yeah, don't yeah, worry but... about a lot of things. But it's still, yeah. No, the one and thing the I've thing heard, is... I don't know if it's true. The one thing I've heard about, uh, I think it was Zaha, I don't know. I have allegedly, I say allegedly, I don't know for sure. Is that there <laughs> is a clause in your contract that while you're working at that office, everything you do, no matter if it's, of work the intellectual property belongs to them so it means let's say i start a podcast the creative insider while work at zahadid zahadid can say this is this is mine (laughs) i don't know if it's true but it sounds ridiculous (laughs) that is wow that would be quite a thing because i know that everything you do in the office obviously belongs to the office but that that is quite a i wouldn't even be surprised with those companies to be honest (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's actually insane the thing is that they never really check those things or execute them anyway because they're like you mentioned often quite chaotic because they're like all run by creatives who are you know not always the most systematic people and it's like a small design studio that's suddenly 400 people but it's still the mindset of a small design studio like an atelier but it's mm-hmm. just not an atelier anymore so i think it's hard for those creative studios to keep both the structure and the craziness mm. under one roof. Well, that's um, what I like about Big because they hired Sheila, uh, that it's the CEO and yeah. that she's a business person, not an architect. Yeah. So yes. from all the stories I've heard, they are the big, the most famous office where I don't know about every location, but at least in Copenhagen, it feels like a okay place to work also because of the country regulations. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe the salary is not as high because you work at big, but still, like if you wanted to try the experience, <laughs> that feels yes. the, the most. Uh, also, like I was a few weeks ago in MVRDV and they introduced policies for no overtime, which is nice. Uh-huh. So things uh-huh. maybe are slowly changing also due to the new generation because. Yes. I see yes, that uh, yeah. my generation doesn't accept any bullshit. Like we're like, fuck off. Like yeah. if you want me to work yeah. every day here so many hours, I'm out of here. Yeah, that's true. I noticed as well a very big shift um, with the generations where like they wouldn't put up with what we put up with, you know, back then. But the, the thing is like, I think the contacts I made there are more the best friends I have now, you know, mm-hmm. so they're not even business contacts that I made, those offices helped my CV. Like when I did the pitch at Grosvenor, one thing is they like the idea, but also they like the CV. Mm, yeah. So it helps you in that respect. But I didn't actually make direct contacts there that would, they're, they're my good friends. So mm. then, and I, we don't. I, I yeah. always feel that people in architecture uh, from university and from different offices by going through these super hard moments and projects, as you said, that you're a hot desker, that you have to wait, work all night long, it builds like a bond, like um, in the army, like the same yes. thing. It's like you yeah. live these crazy yeah. experiences together and you survive together and then yeah. you become the yeah. best friends ever. Uh, for. Okay. And even if you yeah. don't stay in touch, yeah. you see each other and you're like, hi, how are you doing? It feels so like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, you you you'll never lose that bond. You're right. It's like I always say, you have the mutual enemy, <laughs> <laughs> and it really bonds you. And I have literally because I was fifty work there. Ah, hello. It just sit back. Yeah, you were you were off, off for a second. Yeah. What were you saying? Is it working again? Yeah, everything's perfect. Um, it's yeah. So the same with this bond, it's like, I mean, 15 years ago, my first friends are still from Zaha and those who are, some of them have left, you know, London, um, like Milike Altenisik, she does amazing. She's in Istanbul. I could introduce her. She'd be good for a podcast actually as well. And she does um, one of the best, biggest emerging architects in Turkey now, although we're like same age. Um, and she started her firm there. And so she's, um, you know, we we went through all that together, um, the pain <laughs> and the glory. And she has her own huge, amazing architecture firm now doing projects worldwide. And because we're not even in the same cities, but we're always in touch and support each other. And like with her, we might do collaborations, etc. And then there's others who I met in that time and we're just like, you know, I'm basically the godmother of the child and things like, so you really build that bond that um, is, it's a very, very strong bond. So there is a positive in it too. <laughs> I, I think thinking back about like working at these big offices is like that uh, more or less everybody working at these offices is hardcore passionate about uh, architecture and the outcomes mm -hmm. that come out of this is that some of the people break and go to traditional offices or just yeah. get disenchanted. But a few of of the people become someone and then you have this network and then that's valuable. Mm -hmm. um, probably yeah. that's the, the best thing of uh, working at, uh, at these offices. I'm curious, true. you mentioned all these things that you do and uh, it's a cool life, no? Like... Uh, to it's a very different way of experiencing the profession uh, not always sitting at an office uh, in the same place every day but you get mm -hmm. to travel a lot you get to meet a lot of people uh, to have these uh, cool experiences um, now that you are um, an entrepreneur beside being a designer how does that affect your personal life do you still have time to build a relationship with a partner i don't know because not everything in life it's work right mm -hmm. we also work but we want to have other things like yeah. having fun having a family yes. whatever so <laughs> do you have time for it how does it feel for you is this not like um, a goal for you maybe maybe you want to focus on profession so i i mean with my when i started the studio i i had a partner who like i said i think Without him, I wouldn't have started it that way, you know. He was really supportive and pushed me, like, over the edge, as in, to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not together anymore. But I think at that time, it was really, really helpful to have the partner. What I notice now, because <laughs> it's like, um, it's been like last year that we're not together anymore. What I notice now is because I'm so used to sales and pitching <laughs> when I like meet someone new or go on a date, I'm always pitching. 
I can't. <laughs> it's just horrible. It's, I mean, it's also funny, but like literally, I'm never nervous when I go on a date. So I'm like, you know, cracked harder nuts than that. Can you, <laughs> can you make like, an I example of pitching yourself <laughs> on a date? <laughs> I mean, the worst is if anyone notices or like when they when they start asking talking about the work or the job stuff i think there's one someone i met who does like has an alcohol brand it's rum and is doing events and i was like oh my god we should do 3d printed sugar sculptures or like installations for the events and maybe we can do like your logo as 3d printed sugar goodies for everyone to take along and that's like this is the first date like stop it stop <laughs> so I, it happens that i kind of can't i can't it became so me you know um it's like we're one entity like the studio and me and like um so but the thing is uh I, I, when I was at, it was interesting when i was in marbella at this conference right and they weren't necessarily creatives but they were maybe more tech, et cetera, but some of them used to be creatives or some of them used to be lawyers or in finance and then became entrepreneurs. Um, 130 people, 100 men, 30 women. Um, most of the men married and in relationships, well, most of the women single. So one of them said to me that it's really hard for like someone like us to have a partner or have like keep a partner because we're so like, determined and passionate about it that it might be fascinating for someone else but they often the reality is oh my god this is exhausting do i really want that at home mm. <laughs> you know and and then constantly being off again or traveling so much all of those things i think it's easy for both sides to i, I think for women it's harder than for men to be honest but that's more a tra thing because society isn't that equal yet so I think for women, it's naturally still harder to be like uh, kind of on that path and have someone who supports you and accepts that and is happy with that. It's harder to find. For men, it's still traditionally like, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's, it's horrible to say that, but I think it's just my experience and all the other women I spoke to, even at that conference, was really interesting to hear like their opinions that, ah, we're all in the same boat, you know. That said, my business partner, Lisa, she has a partner and a little daughter, but they've been together for like 13 years, long before she started the business. So, you know, that was already established there, mm. but... Yes, it's well, a different story. I think also that there is a lot of superficial approach to the situation because mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak open. I know that I think this, but that probably a lot mm -hmm. of people might think it that it's um, I don't know. You you can say, oh, she's a successful woman. She's a successful designer. Uh, if it's if it's a woman, she must be like um, like a, how do you say? a person a man eater you know like a very mm -hmm. it's it not because of your talent it's because of her uh, way she looks or because of the mm -hmm. way she acts and things like that and for me it's mm, important to talk about these topics too mm -hmm. because i think that there is a lot of superficiality in avoiding these topics and the problem with mm -hmm. architects by talking to so many to them now is that often when we talk 
um, they act, they like want to project a certain image. And yep. um, mm -hmm. the, the inspiration for this podcast for me was the Joe Rogan experience where they talk sometimes very uncomfortable topics with comedians and with mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. and, and in architecture, nobody discusses this. Like, That's true. Uh, yeah. Nobody, I don't know. I, I feel that in order to overcome these problems, you have to talk about them and understand the understand each mm -hmm. side and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i can imagine that for many men it might be intimidating to see you and be like so independent and so strong and and traveling everywhere and meeting these crazy like ass people and and be like oh i don't know i, I don't feel like i can compete <laughs> with that so it's often in order to understand each other or each point of view you mm -hmm. have to discuss it right Yes, and that's true. I also find like we often talk about it, especially with the women, you know, behind closed doors because it is a big topic. And I think even when you're employed as a woman, there's also this thing in your 30s, you have like, you need to make the decision. Can you like, will you have children or a career? And when you have the children, you naturally dip out of your career for a bit because you just can't work for a certain amount of time. And it's much harder to maintain that afterwards. And it's also really hard to find someone to do that with who would really openly support you. And I have a lot of friends who also have struggles with that, you know, especially those who are driven and have their own companies, etc., or their own studios. It's, um, it's a lot of luck to, you know, because you're not a traditional person, maybe, or your life isn't like very much the routine that others would have or expect. So it's really not easy to find each other as well. And maybe it's also that those women are, I don't know if pickier, but maybe, you know, don't have much time. So I can't waste much time mm. if, you know, so, yeah. I think it's uh, also like a lot of, in the society, I don't know if only women or men or both or which generation, there is this misconception that, for example, as you said, if you hire a woman, then at some point she'll have a kid and yes. she won't be committed anymore. But I personally, I analyzed my own behavior. And when I was younger and single, uh, if mm -hmm. the boss would say, who's up for an all-nighter, I'm like, sign me up. Uh, but mm -hmm. simply having a relationship now, I get so annoyed because like for me, that yeah. means uh, sacrificing my time with my partner. Yeah. So if you really yeah. need to hire like people that will be productive and committed, hire like young single people. <laughs> instead. Yeah. <of> <laughs> it's not exactly. like, because if I had a kid also, I would be like, fuck off the project. Like, and yeah. I talk to many girls and, and guys on this podcast and they all say to me that after they had a kid, their deadlines, they didn't give a shit about them. They were like, oh yeah, we can submit the rendering one day later or we can submit this yeah. one day later and nobody's going to die. Um, mm -hmm. and I think, um, it's, it's true for not only for women, it's true for men too. Yeah. And also one thing is I always found with all nighters, even now, although, you know, something, oh, you work so much. No, no, actually it's all time management. If you're efficient and I think it's bad management, if 
also within a company, if people have to pull all-nighters. I mean, okay, sometimes it goes a bit longer, but in most especially creative practices, the only reason for all-nighters are because they want 15 more options just for the sake of it. And then they anyway take option one because you realize this was the best. And I'm all for like perfectionism and pushing the boundaries and trying all the variations. But it often comes at a cost of like, literally for the sake of it. And I always hated those long hours or staying unnecessarily too long at the job or you're scared to leave because everyone else is still here. So if you leave on time or only an hour later, you're leaving early, you know, it's like 7 p.m. Oh, half day Friday, you know. Mm. <laughs> so it's time management. And you know what people underestimate? Women with kids or men are the most um, time efficient. They're mm. the best because they have a very short amount of time where they need to get things done and they actually get them done. Uh, they don't procrastinate as much as others, you know. So it's like, it's almost like when you have a shorter deadline, you actually, you can make it work. And you, you, you're just stricter with your focus as well during that time. There are I two types of, of the... those people. Some of them like just pretend they're focused. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you see that in the outcome. Yeah, yeah. But I noticed that also those yeah. kind of people are much calmer, much more calmer mm-hmm. uh, because they have mm-hmm. bigger issues going through their heads. So, for example, yeah. my favorite um, my favorite type of colleague, it's usually uh, a, a woman that has a child. Like it's my favorite type yeah. of colleague because they're relaxed. Yeah. Um, also, like um, mm-hmm. they have a smaller ego because they have to, you know, deal with small kids that scream without any reason. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> true it's like so they're like oh, whatever uh yeah 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 I, I it's a question that i started asking everyone uh recently because i'm really curious about it i think it says a lot mm-hmm. what is your motivation for for being a designer because as we said you know it's not like that you get crazy rich uh mm-hmm. or i mean not yet um is it status do you like to do you feel connected to your role do you like to say you're a designer is it passionate for your results and for your if you if you could think about what is so special about this job despite all these difficulties we mentioned what is it what Mm -hmm. it drives you i think that it is still deep down that very essence of that i always had since i could hold a pen since I was a baby of the creating the process of creation. It sounds so cheesy now, but I think this is still for me, it makes me so happy to create those things and come up with those new ideas. It really fulfills me. Mm. So, um, you know, it's like, it is a bit like a hobby. <laughs> it pays you a little bit, but, <laughs> but I think that's still the, the thing is with the status. That's interesting you mentioned it because I didn't notice that until like, and also when you're always with designers and architects, th- there is no status to it because we're all the same. You know, you only some you only notice that when you go into other realms or like speak to people from other industries who are like, especially I think when you say architect, they are like, really you. Oh, and they're like impressed. <laughs> it's like, and is that impressive? Is it? Or 
As a, as a guy, it was a great pickup line back in the days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It, it works a lot. They don't know. They, they, they just don't know that, that the reality is, um, oh, you work all the time but make no money. Haha. <laughs> they only know that when they know architects. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that bad. There is much worse. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, among the people that uh, have studied, yes, it's bad. But if you look at it overall, it's yes. much better than many other jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. But there are certain yeah, countries yeah. that it's mm -hmm. like impossible. Like if I come from Italy, I grew up in Italy. In Italy, it's in, like, no, you leave the country because it's very bad. Mm -hmm. But in Germany, yeah. in Austria, Switzerland... Denmark, the Netherlands, I guess the UK. Yeah. It's okay. It's like, yeah, you can have some fun. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, you you know people who make, like, for example, my flat is not um, super designed, etc. But I, whenever I'm away, I sometimes have friends staying at my flat who are, it's a very hot tip, have interior designer or designer friends who can stay in your place as a favor for a bit. When you come back home, you'll always find some new art, accessories, things a bit redesigned, refurbished, or some nice items in your house because they leave you little gifts. So it is comes in handy to be in those circles. Give, give me a also, list. I'll invite these people over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll give you a list. Um, I mean... Also great to have friends in hospitality, like chefs, uh, etc. Because they can a cook. Good one too. They can, can yeah. cook you nice stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Uh, funny. I had one guest, uh, Fabio Palvelli. He told me that his first job was uh, being a private chef, ah. and, and then uh, he uh -huh. started this uh, big conference about uh, Arquivis. And in the first uh -huh. edition. Uh, in order to make it nicer, he went to the supermarket and quickly bought some ingredients and made this super simple for him sandwiches, but everybody mm -hmm. loved them. And he was like, you never know, right? That that, that skill will come handy at some yes. point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's like you as an, an, uh, an actress, right? You know how to uh, interpret yeah. a role, um, control your voice control your intonation, create patterns. And I can even, I would be really curious to see one of your pitches, like when you pitch things, because I think that would be, <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. <laughs> yeah. You need to, someone has to ask me on a, out on a date. That's all it takes. Then I'll start pitching. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell friends I'm taking. <laughs> yeah, you're taken. So <laughs> you need, you need a, Single thread. I'll take. Or... I have to to go through my friends of of London if somebody is available. Yeah. <laughs> can can you record it? <laughs> can you try to ask this girl out and, and like I'll give and... you a, a hidden webcam. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's see. I want to see your pitch. <laughs> like five minutes in, you're pitching some three D printed stuff and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Sophia, let's <laughs> let's wrap it up. We always finish the podcast mm -hmm. with a positive note. It with you was a lot of fun. Uh, time uh, was flying super quickly. Uh, yeah. As you said, we have this uh, creative juice as uh, 
architects and artists and designers, but sometimes it, we run out of it through the stress and the whole life that goes around us. That's not always so mm -hmm. exciting. Do you have some favorite activities that you like doing to recharge your batteries? Like, I don't know, a sport or traveling to a certain place, books, mm -hmm. music, you can pick, you don't have to cover all the things. What do you think is mm -hmm. your thing? So I love doing um, kickboxing on Muay Thai, which um, it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I really, I really enjoy that. I don't know. It's kind of what's wrong with me because <laughs> we, we actually do sparring, you know, so I have bruises all over very often. Um, but I think it really keeps you for one you're totally distracted. I do yoga and things and sometimes a bit of meditation, but um, it's, you know, that kind of sport really gets you out. You can't think about anything else. You have to focus because if you don't focus, you get punched in the face. So you need to relax as well. It helps you a lot in life, I think, on a philosophical level, because if you don't relax, you're going to get stiff and panic, and then you can't actually, you know, the fight is like a communication or a dance. <laughs> you have to react to the other one. You also have strategic thinking involved because there's like, where's the gap? Oh, this is where I can, you know, strike. Um, so it's a really good, actually very mindful pastime. <laughs> um, and the people that are super peaceful and they're a really fun community because we all never talk about work. We all don't know what we do for a living. No one gives a shit what we do for a living. It's all about just being there in that moment and enjoying beating each other up <laughs> but, no anyone but, anyone who listens to this never gonna ask you out <laughs> yeah exactly that's it no you'll always be safe walking around with me you know <laughs> but very unsafe but, if you mess up <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then i mean there's also the obvious like you know uh going to exhibit and london is great for that going to exhibitions shows um, also, I love like going, you know, movie or theater performances, I think, as well, really important to see. And one thing which is important actually for all of us, you should in the morning, it's really good for your circadian rhythm. First thing, go outside for a walk. That's what like, it's better than a cup of coffee. I mean, I love coffee. I'm a coffee junkie, but it's actually for your system. It's better to first thing, get outside and They say into the sun, everyone in London will be like, ha ha, what? <laughs> But just daylight, first thing, it's really invigorating and it makes a complete difference to the day, I think. I live yeah, in Frankfurt, so we don't have that much sun either. So I, also, I, yeah. and I understand completely. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if you listen to Andrew Huberman. He is um, <laughs> ne neuros. Uh, neurologist or something like that so he explains all these tricks um to for example as you said when you wake up to go out and walk but one thing that he really uh -huh. explained it's important to go in sunlight and he yeah. was saying that in the winter if you don't have sunlight to turn on um all possible lights and um yeah yeah not wear too many clothes so that your skin can absorb the photons yeah so it's crazy yeah. how you can uh, affect uh, uh -huh. your body yeah yeah Mm -hmm. And the same at night to wind down already an hour and a half or two before you sh should start. I saw I, I, I saw one football it. guy wearing uh, in, like orange glasses because they shut uh -huh. off the blue lights. Yes. 
Yes, they're really good. They're really recommended. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy. I yeah. One thing I started at this, like in Marbella, the conference, so a lot of like, you know, health app people like longevity, well-being, etc. It's a really, really big thing now. And, and all those biohackers and scientists, which it's quite a funny group of people as well. Very niche. And they're also all into like breathwork sessions. And that's quite Yeah, so I sometimes do those, but sometimes I'm like, you basically just get high on hyperventilating. <laughs> but that's that's a nice, like, he also shut off and only do his breathe Me for an hour. Meditation in a sauna, it's really crazy. If you try to do that, you're going to come out uh, like you're oh. stoned. <laughs> like Yeah, <laughs> that's, I should try that, actually. Uh, I, I don't do it uh, too long because I get really freaked out. Like uh, yeah. it, you come out and because suddenly your mind is so relaxed and then you uh, become like, I think you get an endorphin rush because you're finally out yeah. of the heat and you feel like, oh my God, like, oh, I'm high. Just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> well, Sophia, then thank you very much for your uh, first time on first appearance on the creative insider i say everyone that this is your first time but we had a lot of fun so i'm super mm -hmm. excited for you to unveil the next things going on with your practice and whenever you want to come back and share more stories and more cool things or, or just talk about any topic that it's important yeah. to you you're always welcome back thank you very much i make sure i have a lot of exciting stories ahead happening so i can tell them <laughs> we love the dating part so keep that <laughs> <laughs> the, the dating pitch part <laughs> yes that would be awesome we can do a full podcast on that only that's true <laughs> the dating advice yes <laughs> how to pitch <laughs> thank you very much thank you bye bye bye, -bye.